You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. 927 of your pew Bibles. Now great crowds were travelling with him, so he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother, father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build or wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. This is the word of the Lord. Please take it. Hey, everyone. Hey, if we haven't met, my name's Jonathan. I'm the vicar here, the, the pastor of this church. Great to be with you this morning. We're going to take a look at those uh, very direct words of Jesus as we continue our little three-week mini-series looking at the church's, uh, our church's identity and vision and mission, talking about vision here this morning. Last week we talked about identity and how the uh, red door of the Exodus, the first Passover, um, fulfilled in Jesus, the spotless lamb that was slain, uh, really shapes our sense of who we are. And... Uh, we learned that uh, as a church, every one of us, uh, what we share is the fact that we're all deserving of judgment and that we've all been set free from slavery and that it's all because of the blood of the lamb that was slain for us. It's a theme that's come up regularly this year as we've walked through the book of uh, Revelation together and we're going to jump back into that in two Sundays' time, finish the book off uh, in time for Advent but this morning we're going to focus on vision. And uh, uh, vision is just uh, a, a tool that we use to, to help paint a picture of our preferred future as a church. It's a, an image what I want us to have in mind of where we want to be, what we want to be working towards by God's grace. And uh, this is not like a surface image. This isn't, the image isn't like the kind of buildings we want to build and develop, and though that is part of what we're working towards, but it's, that's, that's surface-level stuff. This is heart-level stuff. This is what we want to see God do in us, the way that we want Him to change us. That's the picture we're going to look at this morning. Now, I'm going to pray now because um, I just, I, I've, I've just got 12 years of idea. This is all I think about, by the way. This is why I'm so boring. This is all, I'm just constantly thinking about this kind of thing. And I don't, just, I, I, I don't want the accumulation of 
12 years of thinking of this to just kind of spew out all over you and we leave here just feeling overwhelmed. So just going to pray. You can pray for me as I, as I pray that God would just really order this so that we have... Um, well, here's what I'm going to pray. I'm just going to pray that God would just send to me now and enable us to capture the, a clear picture for what he wants to do with us over the coming years, all right? So let's pray. Father, uh, we need your help. We always need your help. Um, Lord Jesus, you're our senior leader. Please lead us now. Reveal to us all that you want us to see and capture our hearts with that which uh, you want to compel us. I pray that each one of us this morning would leave here with a really clear sense of what you're calling us to as this church, in this place, at this time. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at the, our, our, our vision, our image of our preferred future as a church moving forward here this morning and um, I want you to know that I, like I said I've been thinking about this for a long time and um, if I think back uh, over the years I think back to 10 years ago right 10 years ago I was not in a good way 10 years ago about this time 10 years ago I was a, like a burnt piece of toast that's what I was like, a burnt piece of toast, just dry and bitter and horrible. And I was in quite a lot of trouble. The bishop who oversees all of the churches in our area had um, not asked me but told me to take a month off and um, to get some help because I had come here with all of these great big ideas and a great sense of what I thought God wanted to do in this place, and then I had gone about my work as if it all depended on me. And I don't know if you've ever attempted to like, take the Holy Spirit's job from him, but it never goes well. It never goes well. Um, it burns you out really quick, and that's what happened to me. I was just... I. I, I feel like my heart was in the right place. The vision I had for what I thought God wanted to do here was, was a, a good and godly one, but I was going about it in a, in a way that was destroying me. So I saw this guy named Dr. Grant Bickerton. He's a psychologist, and he did his doctoral work in burnout in ministry and in um, how to avoid it and how to flourish and, um, and he serves mainly missionaries around the place, helping them to kind of stay sane in the midst of their, their ministry. And so I was seeing him for a long time, and he was trying to help me. And I remember distinctly one point where he just looked at me and said, what do you think God wants from you? And I thought about it for a second or a few seconds or maybe a few minutes. And then I said to him, God wants me to be a powerful, strong, competent leader of my congregation. And he just looked at me and, and said, where did you get that idea? He said, God wants you to love him and to love his people. 
And I just experienced this sort of, you know that thing where you get the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're at once kind of ashamed and released from shame? Like, I just realized how far I had gone off track, gone off track from where Jesus is trying to lead each one of us. You remember in Matthew 22, someone, one of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, like, what are we meant to be doing? Let's take a look at it. There's a, in Matthew 22, teacher, he said, which command in the Lord is greatest? And Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. I think my problem 10 years ago, to some degree, no doubt, today, our problem in trying to fulfill the commands of God is not like a lack of love, but it's, it's disordered love. This is what St. Augustine, the great, one of the greatest thinkers, just full stop in the history of the world, and one of the greatest theologians, and so much of what we believe under the scriptures is, is kind of formed and formulated by him back in the, in the fourth century. And St. Augustine had this idea. He was, he was trying to figure out why people in general, and Christians in particular, were so... Were so so sad, so unfulfilled, so unsatisfied, so despairing. If these things we believe are true, and they are, and these are people who believe them, and they do, then why, why, why are they so unfulfilled? And his idea was that our problem, our major problem is disordered love. Not that we don't love, but that we love the wrong things or in, we love things in the wrong order. And he went to that passage in Matthew 22 and was like, this is ordered love. First commandment, love God. Second commandment, love your neighbor. This is how he put it to, to quote St. Augustine. He said, a just and good person is also a person who has rightly ordered his love so that he does not love what is wrong to love or fail to love what should be loved or love too much what should be loved less or love too little what should be loved more. He said that's the root of so much of our discontent as believers. So I think that's what Jesus is getting at in this passage that, that James just read for us. The reason that we're miserable, even though we have the words of eternal life, is a result of disordered loves. And he kind of attacks it in this passage. So let me just read, he does it in three ways. In, in Luke 14, 25 to 26, he says this. Now great crowds were traveling with him, with Jesus. So he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What he's talking about there is disordered love. 
You know from Jesus' teaching, he's obviously not wanting us to hate mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife, neighbor. He's told us that one of the great commands is to love our neighbor as ourselves. The point is, and this is common in Hebrew teaching at the time, the word hate refers to the sort of a, a comparative love. That next to our love for God himself, all other loves must seem like hate. So family for us, and this is huge for us in our culture, right? If you ask 100 people on the street what's the most important thing in life, 99 are going to say family, right? Some of them might even push it out to friends. Jesus says, family, your love for family is disordered. You have prioritized it over love for God. And then he, he, he goes on in verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You can't at once be a follower of Jesus and a lover of yourself. You can't prize your own life over the degree to which you prize Jesus. To take up your cross, remember this is before the crucifixion happens, the cross at this point is just a symbol of execution, it's just like the Romans' favourite way to make people suffer, it's an instrument of death. Whoever does not bear his own cross and then come after me, then follow me. Following Jesus is an act of taking up your cross. That means dying to yourself. Our loves are disordered. We prize ourselves, our own dreams, visions, kingdoms over Jesus and his kingdom. He says it differently in, in Luke chapter 9, just earlier on. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Family, self, and then he moves on to stuff. For some of us, this is the hardest one of them all. Verse 33, he says, In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Follow Jesus means to renounce the hold that stuff has over us. It's very hard for us to even imagine the hold that stuff has over us because we never go without stuff. If you decide, like all of us should, to fast from time to time, whether it's from food or other stuff, that's when you realize how much of a hold stuff has over you. Jesus knows this, and that's why he says, unless you renounce the hold, unless you forsake the worship service of stuff, you can't be his disciple. Our problem is disordered loves. It's that we love our family, ourselves, and our stuff more than we love King of kings and Lord of lords. 
And he says, unless you reorder those loves, you can't follow me. This is like a ride at Luna Park and there's a measuring tape and unless you're tall enough, you can't go on the, what, the crazy pirate ship that flips over. You can't. You can't. And he's saying that about this stuff. Unless you reorder your loves... And this is going to require like daily recommitment, reorganization. Then you can't follow me, he says. The biggest obstacle to us achieving our vision, that picture of what we believe God wants to make of us, the biggest obstacle to that becoming a reality is not lack of resources. It's not that we don't have enough money in our budget or enough buildings to service the ministry. It's not lack of resources. It's not incompetent leaders, believe it or not. It's not. It's not incompetent or inadequate leadership. It's not even devils and demons. It's not like the thing stopping us from achieving this vision of seeing it come to fruition is not powers of darkness all of those things are factors but they're they're not the biggest obstacle the biggest obstacle is our disordered loves the biggest obstacle is praising Jesus like we did just now singing of our affection and, and, and gratitude and love for him but in practice Prioritizing self, family, and stuff. I know this is a hard teaching, by the way. It was hard for the people then to hear, and it continues to be hard for us. Why is disordered love the biggest obstacle to us achieving our vision? It's because our our vision, let's pull it up, this is our vision as a church. It's to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. That's a statement of the ordering of loves. Unless, like right down deep in your soul, unless Jesus is the priority in the universe, unless he is who he says he is, unless he is ruling and reigning and returning, unless all of this is true in our lived experience, then this is just a pipe dream. It's just a nifty kind of saying to put on a letterhead or print on a sign that's going to go up the front there soon. Like, without first a commitment to obey the greatest commandments. All of this is fantasy stuff. The reason I chose this passage to preach from this morning, looking at vision, is because I really want us to go into this with our eyes open. I really want us to know that if this is what God is calling us to, then it's going to require something of us. 
It'd be irresponsible of me to paint this picture of a future to get of life together and then not tell you what it's going to cost. My recent trip to Tasmania cost me way more than I had planned because I had planned to go over on the, there on the boat. That was going to be my big expense. And then for two weeks, I was going to be like living for free. I had looked up all of the free camping spots. I was only ever going to stay there. Um, and so there was no accommodation costs. And I wasn't going to eat anything unless I caught it myself, which is also free. And I was only going to drink water from rivers. All right, so there's like, it's cheap, right? That's a cheap way to travel. And I did do all of those things, but I didn't factor in some things like the first day I landed there, I went to an outdoor shop and I said, this is what I'm going to do. And they said, you're insane. <laughs> they were like, this place is littered with, the, with empty cars from people who are doing what you did and just disappeared off the face of the earth. We don't know where they are. So then I had to buy a satellite beacon. It's 600 bucks which is about 600 bucks more than my budget. <laughs> and some other gear, like, I didn't know that it can, it can snow in February in Tasmania. I'd never been there before. Jesus really wants us to avoid situations like that as we pursue this vision that we have as a church. He wants to avoid these unexpected, costly expenses. So he's really clear with us. He's really upfront. He says in our reading this morning in Luke 14, he says in verse 27 to 32, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he's laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Jesus is really clear about the cost of following him. I want to be really clear about the cost of being part of this church because we're going to continually appeal to you to put your hand to the plow and get involved in the work of mission and ministry in this place so that we might achieve this vision for a flourishing future together. And I, just, I just need you to know that that's, that's what being here is going to involve. This vision is going to cost you. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you money. We've just spent so much time working on the budget for the coming year. 
I'll tell you later about the meeting on the 29th of this month, our annual parish meeting. We're going to put the budget before you and ask that you would receive it, commit to it. It's going to cost money. We've just had a really low year of giving comparative to the last couple of years. Real, like very, very low. We've had to recast our budget a couple of times. You know, pr price of living's gone up. And... But we're also casting a vision for the, f for the next 12 months, which is going to require not just the giving of this year, but more. There's a lot of big projects that we have in mind for the next few years. All of it costs money. But I'm not just talking about money. This vision is going to cost you yourself. Our vision is to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. I want you to know that this is not the vision that I would write if I was trying for us to be the biggest church we could be. This is not a great way to gather as many people as possible. For that, you need, you need, a, you need, a, you need a vision like uh, Disney, like the Disney Corporation. I think at least at one point in time, their vision was to make people happy, which is fine. That would be a better way to gather as many people as possible. Like if our goal was to have a church of 3,000, then something a little bit more like that would work a whole lot better, right? Like our vision is to be the kind of church that makes you feel good about yourself. I'll sign up for that. This is not like the key to church growth. In fact, I've been told by one person that I might want to reword this if I want to see our church grow numer numerically. But that's just not the way of Jesus, the way I see it. There's this, well, this is a kind of theme repeated throughout the Gospels. Like, it's so obvious that Jesus wasn't just trying to gather as many followers as he could. It's just so obvious. Like, our reading today, it's the point where he's got the most amount of people following, like, great crowds are following him, and then he lands that on them. If he had a PR team, they'd be pulling their hair out, like, what are you doing? In John chapter 6, Jesus has just given a whole bunch of hard teaching like he often does. Verse 60 and 61, it says, Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, his teaching, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? He goes on in verse 65. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back 
and no longer accompanied him, unfollowed him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else are we going to go? If Jesus is who he says he is, then Peter says, we're with you. No matter the cost. In his case, crucifixion upside down was the cost. Jesus is really clear about this. He doesn't want anyone following him just because. He's like the opposite of a bandwagon kind of leader. So this is not the quickest way for us to fill the seats. But I do believe that it's what God is calling us to. So let's break it down. I just want to be like get really detailed about this statement and about its purpose. So, first of all, just a, a definition of a, a vision statement. Like, why do we have this in the first place? Here's a adequate definition. This is, goes for anyone's vision statement. It says a, a short statement describing the clear and inspirational long-term desired change resulting from an organization's work. So next week we're going to look at our mission. That's what we do, the ministry that we have, the things that we invest in, the stuff that we're going to call you to get involved with. Right? That's our, our mission. But that needs to service and enable this vision that we have. So we do these things so that by God's grace we might change little by little so that we, we better reflect this picture of being a community of people, helping people make all of life all about Jesus. It's meant to be aspirational. It's meant to be just out of reach. It's meant to be future-orientated. Clear, long-term change. So again... Let me put this vision before you. Some of you have heard it so many times, you're so sick of it, but I'm going to say it again. If we go to our vision, to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. I want to just break it down for you, line by line, and then we're done. So first of all, we want to be a community We want to be a community. We see a church. Okay, so this is what we see. I want, I want, I, you need to use your imagination. We see a church that gathers people of all ages, stages, cultures, a community that forsakes both tribalism and individualism, joyfully welcoming all people. Our culture, the culture that we live in, is both tribalistic and individualistic. So tribalism is, I have my people that I want to do my life with. They're normally the people that agree with me. They have the same politics or skin color or 
economic status. I have my, my people, and they're the people that I allow into my life. All of us are by nature tribalistic. Human beings are tribalistic. The gospel comes and crushes it. Speaking to a very tribalistic people, Paul says that the gospel, Jesus' death, has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between Greeks and Jews. Destroyed it. So we forsake tribalism. We don't have a tribe here. There isn't a kind of person that we're looking for. All of the mission material that I read says you need to have a a group of people that you're trying to reach. We don't have one. I'm not interested in reaching young people or black people or single mothers. I, I want us to reach everyone. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Every tribe, nation, language. So we reject tribalism. We also reject individualism. This is also just in our blood. If you grew up in this country, you're an individualistic kind of person. That is, you conceive of the world in relationship to you. What's good for you, what suits you. The kingdom of God is not individualistic. In, in putting this statement together, I really wanted something, and this is years ago, but I really wanted something that couldn't be read individualistically. There are some great vision statements out there. The one at the church I, I belonged to growing up was to know Christ and make him known, which is a wonderful statement. Know Christ, make him known. But it can be read individualistically. All right, so I'm going to know Jesus really well and, and I'll make him known to the people that I know. I wanted something that could not be read that way. You can't take this and just apply it to yourself. This is us. This is our vision shared among all of us requiring the input and involvement of all of us, which is what the next line is about. So yes, a community of people helping people. We see a church where every believer is a minister. Do you see yourself that way? You can introduce yourself to someone. Like they say, what do you do? You can say, I'm a minister at a church. Every believer is a minister. A place where building one another up is a sacred calling shared by all. This is not the work of the professionally religious. That's me. I'm professionally religious. You guys pay me to be religious. Our ministry here is not dependent on the professionally religious. It's a sacred calling shared by all. We're all ministers. In fact, this is so true that if this isn't the case, then we get nowhere. 
a surefire way for us to fail in this is for us all to say, we pay you, Jono, to do this stuff for us. So, do it. Our culture is not just tribalistic and individualistic, it's consumeristic. So again, by nature, you're going to turn up here and say, I made my direct debit this month, so feed me. You are the purveyor of religious goods and services, Mr. Smith, Reverend Smith. I've paid my money, so where's my produce? I love going to the movies. I love, I love it. I love going to the cinema. It doesn't happen much, but when I go, I love it. I give them a lot of money, especially if I get popcorn, all right? It's a lot of money. And then I get to sit down in comfort and be entertained. That's not what's happening here. That, that's not what this is about. The distinction is like, uh, to use a metaphor, the distinction is like between the, the difference between a cruise ship and a battleship. All right, church is not a cruise ship. You don't get on board and enjoy the ride. Put on a few kilos while you're at it, right? Sunbake. I don't know what you, I've never been on one, but I'm imagining that's what it's about. I'm seeing hammocks and dancing girls and drinks with little umbrellas. That's a cruise ship. A battleship is very different. A battleship, everyone on a battleship is there for a reason. They're part of a mission. They don't carry any passengers. This church is a battleship. In fact, the church is a battleship. It's a, it's a mission vessel. Every believer is a minister. And the good news is, like unlike a battleship, which I imagine is just a lot of hard work, the good news is that being involved in the ministry of a church is actually the key to finding joy in being part of a church. I'm telling you, if, if I wasn't involved in ministry, I would never go to church. I can't think of a bigger waste of time. And this is like, I understand this is confronting if you're a kind of turn up to church and then go home again kind of person. But I, my, my plea for you is not just that, the reason I'm telling you this is not just that I believe this is what church is, it's just the reality, but it's also because I want, I want I'm, I'm zealous for your joy. It's a joy. Ask anyone who is serving here this morning. It is a joy to minister to God's people in God's church. He makes sure of it. He really makes sure of it. He guarantees that you will experience joy and satisfaction in serving Him and His people. Not without cost, not without frustration, not without tears, but with deep joy. A community of 
people helping people make all of life this is a real challenge to those of us who are still living in the last century in the last century you had this phenomena it's a really weird peculiar disfigured phenomena called nominal Christianity it was the idea that you could be a Christian because that was like your, that was on your name badge. It was an identity you assumed for yourself. I'm a Christian person. I, put, I ticked that on the census. And have no engagement with either God or his people. Fascinating. I think if you went to Jesus or Paul or any of the disciples, anyone in the early church, the church fathers, if you went to them with that idea, they'd be like, what the hell is this? We see a church that longs to experience God's presence in every sphere of life. Anything that you call your life, God's presence, saturating it. A place where private religion is cast aside like garbage in favor of a daily apprenticeship to Jesus. He's the master where his apprentices, every day, we seek to walk in his footsteps. The blessing that used to be pronounced on the students of rabbis in Hebrew culture, may, may you be covered with the dust of your rabbi. That as he walks before us, we are so close to him in daily apprenticeship that that his dust covers us. All of life. No such thing as Sunday morning Christianity, no such thing as private religion, no such thing as nominal faith. All of life. And finally, all about Jesus. We see a church overwhelmed got to get we got to get those anglican kinks out of our system that that kind of that that british like we we just don't want to experience any sort of emotion or kind of be t- taken up with any affection no we want to see a church overwhelmed with love for jesus our creator, redeemer, master, and friend. A place where his life, death, and resurrection are at the center of who we are and what we do. It's in our bones. It's in our blood. Anyone gets an idea to do anything at this church, and we want to be asking the question, is this shaped by a desire for the glory of Jesus? The truth is, right, this is not groundbreaking. All of life is already all about Jesus. We just don't know it. The glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. The glory of God is is throbbing all around us and we're just, our disordered loves have blinkered us to the reality 
But all of life is all about Jesus. We just want to get on board with the reality. I hope that if you've been here any length of time, you know one thing to be absolute fact about who, how we see ourselves. I, I really hope it's really clear that we are convinced, utterly convinced, that this thing is not about us. And that without Jesus, we can do nothing. Do you know this country is littered with the corpses of dead churches who made their ministry about something other than Jesus? Say that again. This country is littered with rotting corpses of churches that made it about something else. Oh God, save us from ever, like next year or in 10 years or in 100 years from now, ever removing you from the throne and making it about something else. You know what they make it about? Normally they make it about good things. The good things become idols when we take Jesus off the throne and replace him with whatever our agenda is. It's all about Jesus. How we work this out, this is what we're looking at next year, oh, sorry, next week. Um, how we work this out, how we, uh, the mission that we do, the stuff that we do, the ministry, that changes. Changes all the time. Different people, different giftings, different callings, different circumstances, that kind of stuff changes. But this, this thing never changes. It's all about Jesus. Start to finish. So there it is. I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us, uh, and I want to pray that... Here's what's going through my mind, okay? This is... This, um, Uh, it's, it's always fascinated me how James Jesus' brother James says um, not many of you should want to be teachers because we know that teachers will be more harshly judged by God they'll face a harsher judgment so here's what I've just done I've, I've just if I'm wrong then I've just open myself up to a significant amount of judgment from God. Because if, if I'm saying this is, this is what, this is, this is the whole thing, like this is, this is the, the vision that we have as a church and what I'm calling us to, and then I spend the next year before I'm eaten by a shark or hit by a bus or I'm, ta- I'm taken somewhere else, to ministry somewhere else, or, you know, if we do this for another 10 years or 20 or whatever, if, I, if, if, if I'm calling you to this, 
and I'm wrong, I'm misled, I'm, I'm motivated by self-aggrandizement, or I don't know, a thousand ways that I could be misleading us, if, if that happens, I'm in so much trouble. So all I can do this is all I got. All, all I can do is, uh, for the last 12 years, plead with God for his grace and mercy to, to, to be leading me so that I'm not misleading you. And all I can do now is just pray and just put it all under the blood of Jesus and, and ask that he would wash away any of the, any of the junk lies or the wherever I'm wrong and then just crystallize clarify whatever's good whatever's true whatever's worthy of our, of our lives alright I'm going to do. Yeah, I'm going to pray. Um, please, please join with me. Just uh, let's just join our faith together. And um, <clears throat> if um, this uh, extended ramble is um, resonating with you to any degree, then please, please join your faith with mine, and we'll ask for God's mercy. And, and then um, we're going to give you some time to reflect, Father. Please have mercy on us as your church here in Caroline Springs. Please have mercy. Oh, we're just riddled with um, disordered love and mixed motivations. Oh, we get, we get, we get all um, mixed up with what we should be giving our lives to. And, and we love some things more than we should and we don't love others as much as we should. We ask by your Holy Spirit that you would bring order to chaos and just realign our lives with your will, your ways. Help us to love mother, father, husband, wife, brother, sister, neighbor in the right way in a well-ordered way. Help us to have you, Lord Jesus, as our supreme, the supreme recipient of our affections. Please have mercy on me, Heavenly Father. You are our great judge. Please have mercy on me for where I have misled these brothers and sisters and where I have spoken or acted out of self-interest or mixed motivation. And please, Lord, please clarify, solidify, um, mobilize, energize 
the vision that you have for this church. I pray, Lord God, that in the next couple of minutes, as we listen to these words, we would also do some accounting. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the headspace, the heart space, to count the cost, first of following you, and second of being part of this church. And from there, Lord God, may you give us grace to commit fully to you and engage in a life of ministry as ministers in this place, ministers of your grace, ministers of your gospel. Father, please, little by little, over the years, please faithfully and steadfastly build us into a community of people helping people Make all of life all about Jesus. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. life I live is not my own for my Redeemer paid the price He took it to be His alone to be His treasure and His prize the things of earth I leave behind to live in worship of my King His is a right to rule my life Mine is a joy To live for Him I died to sin Upon the cross I'm bound to Jesus In His death The old is gone And now I must Rely on Him every breath with every footstep that I tread while mysteries he has in store I cannot know what lies ahead but know that he has gone before there is a voice of God has called my name, so I will